Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Hello and thank you for listening to another episode of Let the Bible Speak. Today we're continuing in our series of studies on the subject of the fear of God. Again, a subject that has fallen into disrepute. Again, many have the understanding of God's grace, that God's grace is such that there should be nothing of the fear of God in the Christian life. We've taken the time in previous studies to examine the occurrence of the fear of God in every age of redemptive history. So may God bless this study to your hearts today. And if you have any feedback, drop us an email, please, at malvernfpc at yahoo.com. Well, tonight we're turning to our series of studies on the doctrine of the fear of the Lord. And tonight I ask you to turn your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Of course, this chapter is so well known uh, for the uh, first giving of the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, summarizing the character of God, again given to those whom God has redeemed out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, uh, chapter 20, verse number 2. But I want to go down to the verse number 18 of this portion, Exodus 20 and verse 18. Again, the Word of God says, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God is come to prove you and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood afar off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. Amen. May God encourage our hearts in his word uh, tonight. So in our last studies, we noted that there were these two different types of fear, two different concepts when it comes to the defining of the fear of the Lord. And even before you get to the fear of the Lord, we know these different types of fear in ordinary life. There is the fear of terror, a fear that causes us to flee or to fight against some perceived harm. Uh, It's a fear we identify a potential risk or harm to ourselves and we either fight or we flee. But there's also this fear of awe or reverence. And again, we still, even in modern English, we still use the term fear in this regard, although perhaps not as commonly as in former generations. This is the fear or the reverence that a child may have to a parent. And this fear is not inconsistent with a close relationship. It's not a fear that causes someone to run away from the other party, but indeed can be consistent with a relationship of love and affection. Now, we noted last time that man's relationship with God can also be defined in these two separate ways. There is a fear of terror. 
For the unconverted, they ought to fear God in the sense of terror. Adam shows us what man's response should be when they recognize their sin. Adam, who knew his shame and his guilt, he hides from God, and God comes and says to Adam, Where art thou? And Adam says he was hiding because he was afraid. If that fear of terror is seen in Adam's heart, it will also be seen in the final day when people hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 20, again we get this fear of terror where people are seeking to run away and hide themselves from the wrath of the judging Christ Jesus. Now we noted again that the converted, the saved, the children of God need not have this terror. We have been saved from wrath, and we shall be saved from wrath, and there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Yet, as the children of God, we are not unaware or forgetful of the terror of God. And as we closed last time, we saw this terror can move us to evangelism. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And it's, if you like, a sense in which we are conscious that if man comes before God in unconverted states, then God is terrible towards those unconverted souls. And we understand that terror. It's not that we, we come to know the grace of God and we then forget the sense of the fear of God in terms of terror. Rather, we understand that, Second Corinthians 5, we know the terror of God and we persuade men. But it's also used by Paul in Hebrews to motivate careless believers to shun apostasy. Hebrews chapter 4, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. And so Paul, again without distinction, uh, brings this word of encouragement to the entire congregation. And he tells them all, to fear lest they come short of the grace of God in terms of their final redemption. And so, yes, there is a sense in which we fear falling into our past sins, fear falling away from Christ Jesus. We, we understand the doctrine of security. We understand the child of God cannot fall from grace. But still, in the church, there are those who are not truly believers, and there are warnings given to them, the warnings of fear. That fear is also part of our encouragement to flee from sin and from apostasy. And so we did take the time, I think it was important to recognize that there is this terror of God that is appropriate at certain times and in certain individuals. But the fear that pleases God in the heart of the child of God is not this fear of terror. It is the fear of reverence and awe. Again, historically, it was often termed filial fear. The word filial pertaining to the relationship of a son to the father. And so the filial fear of the child of God is the fear, the reverence, the awe, the veneration of a son towards a father. Again, this concept, again, is so far removed from modern thoughts of parenting and family life that, again, it still seems strange in our ears. But it is important in biblical terms that children have a reverence and an awe towards their parents. 
It's the foundation of respect and dignity in the home. That fear is not a fear of terror. They should not fear the abuse of a harsh and a cruel father, but they should fear the disapproval of their father. They should long for the smile of their father. Now, these two fears we see in our text here in Exodus chapter 20. And we see both of these fears mentioned. And again, you know the scene where, again, we're up the, if you, if you like, where the foothills of Mount Sinai. God is coming to talk to Moses. And as he comes, there is, again, this tremendous display of God's being. You see a display of his majesty in terms of the signs and the wonders. Uh, Verse 18, they see thunders and lightnings, the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. God has supernaturally brought these signs of his majesty to bear upon the hearts of the people. They realize they are in the presence of God. They realize that they are in the presence of a God who is not to be trifled with, a God of supreme majesty holiness, and also authority. You see, along with this display of God's majesty, there is the display of God's authority. They know that God is speaking to them through Moses. And they say in verse 19, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us. They see his majesty, they hear his authority, and their response is to stand afar off. Verse 18. You see, when they are confronted with the majesty and the authority of God, uh, the result in the hearts of the people is to tremble. It is this fear of terror that wants to keep God far off. does not want to draw near to God, but stands afar off from God. And to these people, Moses says to them, in response to their response, Moses says to them, verse number 20, Fear not. Don't fear. You see, what is their concern? Verse 19. Their concern is that they will die. That's what I've said to you. This fear of terror is a fear of some perceived harm to the person. And so they recognize the majesty and the authority of God, and their concern is, we're going to die. And thus they have fear. And Moses tells them, fear not. And yet... Having told them to fear not, explaining that God is, if you like, testing them and proving their love and devotion to him, he then says, fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. Fear not, says Moses, only fear. And so you see this distinction between a wrong sort of fear and a right sort of fear. Uh, and this passage is so very helpful then to enable us to define something of this good and worthy fear that is in the will of God for our hearts tonight. We see definitions here. He says, Fear not, but rather that God's fear come before your faces, that we sin not. This again, I say, is so helpful when we come to think of building a definition of the fear of God. But as we do that, let me give you a couple of men, a couple of Johns, uh, not in the scriptural John, but Johns in church history, who have again uh, gone a long way in helping us in defining the nature of this fear of God. John Murray says this, uh, 
The controlling sense. He's saying, what is the fear of God? The fear of God is the controlling sense of the majesty and holiness of God. And the profound reverence which this apprehension draws forth. These things constitute the essence of the fear of God. A controlling sense of God's majesty. A profound reverence which is really the, the result of this apprehension of the majesty and holiness of God. That's Murray's definition. Reverence coming from a sense of God's majesty and holiness. John Brown, again, he gives a definition of the fear of God in his exposition of 1 Peter chapter 2, and he says this, We are to fear him. It's in the language of fear God in 1 Peter 2, 17. We are to fear him, that is, we are to cherish an awful or a reverential sense of, of his infinite grandeur and excellence, corresponding to the revelation he has made of these things in his word and his works. And here's the point. Inducing in us. Okay, so we're fearing him. There's this reverential sense of his grandeur. Inducing, provoking in us a conviction that his favor is the greatest of all blessings and his disapproval the greatest of all evils. And manifesting itself and leading us practically to seek his favor as the chief good we can enjoy and to avoid his disapproval as the most tremendous evil we can be subjected to. You see, there's a a breadth and a depth to this understanding, isn't there? They're they're trying to get to grips with the language of the fear of God in the Scriptures. It's a response to his holiness, his grandeur, his excellence, his majesty. It brings convictions in our souls whereby we want God's favor and we shun God's disapproval. And from that, then there's a lifestyle that results from this. Brian says this, such is the fear of God, which the Christian man ought to cherish and manifest toward God. This is something we should desire. Well, we should want to live and spend our days in the attitude of the fear of the Lord. And so let me try to simplify some of those things uh, and again use the scriptures to prove uh, the truthfulness of those words. It is, if you like, a controlling attitude of the Christian heart. When we talk about the fear of God, we are talking about an apprehension or an attitude within the heart of the Christian. An attitude. And so with, with that in mind, what are the foundations of this attitude? What does it come from? Well, again, if you're uh, thinking scripturally, you know that all good graces in the heart of the child of God flow from the work of the Spirit of God. We don't just suddenly become those who know the fear of God. You remember Romans chapter 3 in describing the unconverted people? There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so the fear of God that we enjoy is indeed a work of God's regenerating grace. Remember Jeremiah 32, I will give them one heart that they may fear me forever. God's going to give the heart to the people with the result that they would then fear God. But what does a new birth do? Again, if you're analyzing or assessing, well, how do we come to fear God through the new birth? Well, the new birth gives us a new heart. And that new heart possesses certain convictions. And those convictions then produce godly fear. So the the foundation of this attitude are these fundamental convictions. Now that they come from the rebirth, but they are convictions that are the, if you like, they're, they're things we possess with every fiber of our being. 
And what are these convictions? Well, there is a recognition in our hearts, first of all, of the goodness of God's law. We come through the rebirth to recognize that God's law is good. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. You see, the setting here in Exodus chapter 20 is, of course, the giving of the law. And if you note there in verse number 20, it is that God's fear was before their faces that they would not sin. So there's something in this fear that leads to an avoidance of sin. But what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. So you've got the Ten Commandments here. You've got a description of fear and not sinning. And so fundamental again to this existence of fear is the recognition that God's law is good. It is right. It is holy. It is a reflection of God's character. And we come to to see the goodness of God's law. That's part of what it is to fear God. But it's also a conviction of the all-seeing holiness of God. So we come to understand God's law is good. And by the way, these are, these are not really in any particular order. These things all come as a package. Again, we could reorder these in different ways and emphasize it in different ways. We come to the goodness of God's law, and we come to understand the all-seeing holiness of God. You see, God gives his law. He then encourages, through Moses, that the people would fear and have God's fear before their faces. So they would not sin. Well, how does this work practically? How does a fear of God result in us avoiding sin and pursuing holiness? Well, because we understand and know that God sees our hearts. He sees our actions, He sees our hearts. But beyond that, we know that God judges our sin. So therefore, sin cannot be kept secret. And sin is serious. And therefore, we fear God. And again, we, we looked at a text in Leviticus chapter 19 in a previous study on the Lord's Day. Turn across there to that text. We emphasize that in our account of the man Obadiah, who feared the Lord greatly. And Leviticus chapter 19, the verse number 14, Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind. Those are sinful things. God says, Thou shalt not. Then to do those things, well, they're sin. Don't curse the deaf, they can't hear. Don't trip up the blind, they cannot see. But rather fear thy God. I am the Lord. The emphasis is, in a proper understanding of the fear of God, is a recognition that the deaf cannot hear and the blind cannot see. God is not deaf and God is not blind, and he can hear and he can see. And so the fear of God enables us to not curse the deaf, and not to trip up the blind. That's a sense. And so from that, I think we can make the, the right assertion that for those who fear God, there is a recognition of God's all-seeing holiness, that He sees our hearts, He sees our actions, and seeing them judges those actions, treats them seriously, and judges us for our wickedness. We understand that. We hold that conviction in a newborn heart. You know, you may say, well, of course, the majority of people in this district have no thought of the whole all-seeing holiness of God. 
They don't believe for one second that God is all-seeing in His holiness. They reject that thought outrightly. And so if you've come to understand that, if you know when you turn on your computer screen, for example, or you pick up the telephone to call someone, and you have in your mind, if I do this or if I say this, no one else may see, but you know in your mind but God sees. That's a recognition of the fear of God in your heart. And it's a mark of God's grace in your heart. And you should treasure that and be thankful for it. And so that's the second thing. First of all, the goodness of God's law. Secondly, the all-seeing holiness of God. And thirdly, and crucially, a conviction regarding the grace of God. The grace of God. Again, this is often forgotten. If we're going to fear God, surely that fear is, is removed from the understanding of the grace of God. But the opposite is the case. You see, look what Moses says. Fear not. But may his fear be before your faces. If we are to have the fear of God properly before our faces, it will only come as we also obey the command to fear not. But how do we not fear God with this terror? Only when we're at peace with God. Isn't that what the psalmist says? If you mark iniquities, who can stand? You know, if you, if you treat me according to my sins as Irving, I can't stand before you. I need to run away from you. I need to stand afar off. I can't stand close. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Psalm 130, verse 4. There is no proper fear of God without a recognition of the forgiveness of God. You, you, you take that statement. Let's say you stand in a public square and say, God has forgiven me. You know, few words, four words in our English language. God has forgiven me. Do you recognize that in that statement, you have revealed so many profound convictions Convictions and truth regarding God and sin. Convictions and truth that lead to the fear of God. You see, when you say God has forgiven me, you believe that God is real. That's a remarkable thing. By God's grace, you've come to recognize that God is real. You've come to recognize that God is a lawgiver. God is holy. He alone has the right to forgive you your sins. And he must forgive you your sins if you stand before him. You've come to recognize those things and confess those things. Furthermore, you've come to recognize that sin is real. That you've broken God's law and you're guilty before God. And you've come to recognize that to break God's law is to do that which is harmful and wrong. Uh, Yes, against the holiness of God, but also against yourself. God's law is good. My sin is real. Therefore, I'm guilty. And therefore, I deserve wrath. You see, to say God has forgiven you presupposes all of that information. The reality of God, the reality of sin, the reality of guilt, the reality of God's wrath. All of that is presupposed in the statement, God has forgiven me. And yet by God's grace through Christ I am forgiven. By faith I've come to recognize that Christ's life and death and resurrection is sufficient to pardon all of my sins. But the forgiven sinner who has come to know peace with God and the joy of Christ's work, that forgiven sinner still holds all those same fundamental convictions. You don't come to know forgiveness 
and then forget all the things that are presupposed in getting forgiveness. You don't come to know peace and then forget that God is real and God is holy and sin is real and guilt is real. You still hold all those things. But now, now you say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. You have all those convictions, but now with the additional reality that you're grateful for God's mercy and grace. And this combination is so invigorating and vital in the Christian life. A recognition of the awfulness of God with the mercy of God and the thankfulness that results leads us to this position of delighting in the fear of the Lord. These are the fundamental convictions. And if you've come to know these convictions, you've come to know them by God's grace. You know, we we come in this occasion, we come to pray. And we come to pray for the lost. And the outcome of our desire is that those who have no fear of God would come to know the fear of God. And so what are we really praying for? We're praying that they would come to have these convictions regarding the goodness of God's law, regarding the holiness of God, regarding the grace of God. We're praying that sinners would come to know and understand these things. How can that be so? Well, in part, by presenting the Bible before them. Because the Bible reveals these things. The Bible shows us the grace of God and the holiness of God and the goodness of God's law. But people can understand these things all day and all night. They can recite the catechism and the confessions. But only when God gives them that one heart will they come to fear God. You see, we are thinking of things in the fear of God regarding our our own Christian living. We want to walk in the fear of God. We want to increase in these convictions that our fear of God is not static but grows. And we reverence God more and more day by day. But beyond that, we're coming in this place to seek the face of God for the conversion of lost souls, that God would apply the word that they hear and give them this one heart, which is the only way they'll come to properly fear God. We're just getting going. We're beginning to, if you like, lay a foundation for this subject. But I trust even tonight, as you think of these foundations of this proper attitude, may these foundations motivate you to read your Bible, to pray the Spirit of God to open your eyes to understand the Bible, and beyond that, for the Spirit of God to lead unconverted souls to come to know and to love the fear of God. May God hear our cries tonight uh, to that end for His name's sake and for His glory. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.